Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, pro, who, he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the Word of God. Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here, and um, we're in the middle of a great series. So we're in week five now of our Habits of Grace series. And now normally at this time of year, we'd be moving through our major book of the year, and the reason we're not is because uh, if you know anything about what's been happening at City Light, you may know that we've uh, begun the works of a, a new gospel work, a new campus over in Burwood, and 20 of our members have just left to be a part of that. And so growing as a church this year is going to involve rebuilding, that we are now at our, having sent people away at our smallest for a couple of years, and so making more and stronger disciples is going to include that challenge this year. And so we wanted to set up a bunch of healthy spiritual disciplines that are going to see us grow stronger as disciples of Jesus week on week, month on month, year on year. And the first one we looked at was stewardship and um, God's grace really abounded in generosity in this church, which was an amazing thing. And uh, the second one that we're looking at is church community. We started last week looking at how dear and precious the church is to Jesus. And so anyone who follows Jesus needs to feel the same about his church. And this week we're going to dig into, into Hebrews 10 about what it says really about the practical realities of church community being a week-in, week-out habit. And I think one of the challenges to this is the context that we live in, in the city and in the inner city in particular. I don't know if you know the backstory of 7-Eleven. I'm sure you've done plenty of reading on that topic. But uh, you may or may not know that it wasn't always called 7-Eleven. That initially it was called totem, uh, totem stores because the idea was you bought your goods and then you toted them away. This was back in a time when there was very little creativity around store names. It was just literally, what do you do? But the, in uh, 1946, they, ex they expanded their opening hours beyond where anyone else in the retail industry at that time was to 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. And that was, that was an extraordinary move. But uh, that changed again in 1963 when after a football game in Texas, one of the stores was flooded all the way to 11 p.m., and they extended their opening hours into the AMs, and they continued to see customers come through. And from that day onwards, they operated on a 24-hour roster, and they never went back. And they were the first ones to do it. But the crazy thing about that is, that seems unextraordinary now, doesn't it? That a shop would be open for 24 hours. But they were the first to bust through and to see that profit could be made from the midnight hours. And once they were across the line, other businesses started clamoring over them as well. See, it is the case that in the relentless pursuit of profit, our city stays open longer and longer and longer. The first year we were here in Balmain, on Christmas Day, there were no cafes open, not a single one. And then around probably year two or three that we were here, I noticed that one or two were open, and they made an outrageous profit. Then the next year there were three or four more, and so on and so on, and it keeps growing every year because... People now start to feel like if we don't open, we're going to miss out on profit. And so this city is built on this relentless pursuit of profit and people trying to outdo each other to be the first to make money. 
And the result is that we have this city that is open all the time. You can do stuff all the time. There is never a time when it switches off. There used to be a thing, like you may even hear the term, when someone calls another person a Sunday driver, it came from the tradition that there was so little to do on a Sunday that one of the most common hobbies was just to drive around with no particular destination. We laugh about it, but it was a Sunday tradition because there was nothing to do. Even as late as the early 90s, petrol stations weren't open on the weekends, so there'd be this, on Friday afternoons, there'd be this huge trail down the road because everyone was trying to get their petrol for the weekend. There was just nothing to do. But now, stuff is available all the time. But the flip side of that is, because producers are open all the time, you can consume 24-7 as well. And it's led to a, an unhelpful pattern that a guy called David Brooks, a political pundit over in Washington, not a believer at all, but he makes these observations about our generation that has this superabundance available to us. Look at what he says. He says, The world has provided them with a superabundance of neat things to do. Naturally, they hunger to seize every opportunity and taste every experience. They want to grab all the goodies in front of them. They want to say yes to every product in the grocery store. They are terrified of missing out on anything that looks exciting. But by not renouncing any of them, they spread themselves thin. What's worse, they turn themselves into goodie seekers, greedy for every experience and exclusively focused on self. If you live in this way, you turn into a shrewd tactician, making a series of cautious semi-commitments without really surrendering to some larger purpose. You lose the ability to say a hundred no's for the sake of one overwhelming yes. Isn't that a fair description of life in the city? A dozen friendships, but none of them very deep. A dozen hobbies, but all of them feeling semi-complete, not done well. The constant feeling that we are just half doing things. The fear of missing out, crippling our ability to say no to things, even though our schedules are already fully jammed. See, the, the false belief is that if we half do a bunch of things, that we can get more done. But the problem is that some things require full commitment to really enjoy them. If you think of it this way, if you were, to, if you were hungry and thirsty at the same time, and you had only a dollar, and a drink costs a dollar, and chips cost a dollar, and you put 50 cents in each machine, what do you get? You get nothing. Half committing to things doesn't work. You can't half commit to a marriage, you can't half commit to Christ, and you can't half commit to His church. That's what we're going to see from Hebrews 10 this afternoon. And so as we consider the habit of church community, one of the biggest challenges in the city will be not making cautious semi-commitments. We're not just keeping our options as, as open as possible so that we can forego one for the other, but going all in, making a hundred no's that we might say one large yes. And I'm going to pray that God would reveal that through his word this afternoon. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a good and loving God. You are an everlasting God and ever wise that the church was your idea, and that you have loved your church with an everlasting love. You have poured out the blood of your Son, that we might be set free, that we might call one another brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to see what you have to say to us in your word this afternoon, that it might all be for your glory. Amen. Well, as we dive into this passage in Hebrews 10, it's worth noting that this is really at the end of a pretty long book called Hebrews, a letter to a bunch of Christians who had a, a Jewish background. 
And the main point of the author is he's trying to explain to them how the Old Testament connects to Jesus. But in particular, the main theme is grow up. Again and again, it's to press on to maturity. So in chapter 6, he calls them, he says to them, don't lay again a foundation, but press on towards maturity. In Hebrews 10, he says, don't shrink back, but actually press on. In Hebrews 12, we read, uh, run the race with perseverance. It's just this constant theme in the book of Hebrews. Don't go backwards, go forwards, press on, press on. And then at the end of, of chapter 10, the, the author starts to sum up the purpose of the Old Testament law, in particular the sacrifices. And we read this in Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. Hebrews 10, sentence 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Here the writer is stating that the, the Old Testament was a shadow of what was to come when Jesus shows up. They're saying in the Old Testament, there were rules around sacrifices. Every year, the high priest would gather all of Israel and the representative leaders to the temple in the capital in Jerusalem, and there'd be a day of atonement, the day where a sacrifice was made for sin. And on that day, when the sacrifice was made, the high priest, and only the high priest, would dip a hyssop branch in the blood of that sacrifice, go into the temples and sprinkle it on the walls as a sign that a sacrifice had been made for his sins so that he could enter the presence of God. And it was a reminder year on year that sin had not been dealt with, that there was a blood price to be paid, and because it had to happen every year, it was clear that that, pay, that price had not been paid once and for all. And so the idea is this, what he's getting at is like it was a reminder to Israel every single year that this barrier between them and God, this distance between them and God had not yet been brought together. And when Jesus shows up, he changes everything. It's kind of like this, for Gavin and I, a friend of ours, about, uh, probably about two years ago, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he's made a full recovery, and it's, it's one of the ones where, where there is a reasonable chance of recovery. But he still had to go through chemo, and it's a pretty awful process. And uh, the way that he, he's a pretty funny guy, the way that he announced it to everyone was on Instagram, and he had a photo of the front of his car and then of the back in the parking spot and just said, quick in, and, quick in and out chemo treatment for the Savo. And that was how he let everyone know what was going on. We're like, okay. But the, the interesting, thing, interesting thing on it, and I noticed this theme, through the comments, a lot of people were saying comments like, like screw, uh, screw cancer, like, you know, heavier language than that. I'm just trying to keep it PG. But like, there, was a, there was a lot of that sort of banter. And around the same time, I saw someone had a t-shirt that just said like, you know, again, same sort of language, but like, screw hunger or world hunger or something like that. I was like, oh, why? Like, what's this thing of being so aggressive? I mean, cancer's not going to be like, all right, I'll leave your friend alone. Just stop being mean. Like, wh what's the mindset behind it? And I, th I think it's this. You can tell me later if you think I've missed it. I think one of the values of our culture is to be really cynical and to not be a sucker or naive about anything, Right? So you don't want to be naive, you'd be cynical, you'd be kind of a bit negative, whatever. But at the same time, with something like this, you really need to be positive. Like, it's not that cool when your friend is diagnosed with something like this to be, like, all down about it. And so saying screw cancer is kind of a way of being negative and positive at the same time, being cynical and optimistic. 
But funnily enough, as you can imagine, for him, that wasn't much of a comfort. The real comfort came when he heard that it had been completely cleared up and he no longer had to go back for chemo treatments. That was the real comfort. That was the reminder to him that it was done and it was dealt with and it was finished. When he didn't have to go back to the clinic and go through that treatment again and again, it was a reminder every day that he was free. That is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying about the sacrifice at the temple. The fact that we at City Light don't make a weekly sacrifice is handy because that would make a huge mess, but also it's a reminder week on week that it's done, it's finished. Jesus dealt with it. Look at what he says in Hebrews 10, 5 to 18. He lays out what Christ achieved. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his office, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. He then adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You see what he's saying? saying when, when Jesus comes, he deals with sin once and for all. He says the, the priest offering sacrifices over and over and over is a reminder that it is not dealt with. But when Jesus comes, he lays down his life, he pours out his own blood, and sin is defeated completely forever. Now we know that this, this letter was probably written before AD 70, because in AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed, there was no more temple, and at this point, he seems to be indicating that people are still making sacrifices at the temple. And the author is saying, look, that is, they're wasting their time. It's done, it's dealt with, they don't need to keep doing these sacrifices. Jesus has fulfilled it, it is finished, it is complete, it is fully done. It says, by a single offering, Jesus only had to do it once, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It says, after that, he sat down. When do you sit down? You sit down, when, unless you're a procrastinator, you sit down when the job is done. When Jesus died and rose again, he defeated sin and death completely and he sat down because it was finished. He's now seated at the right hand of God, awaiting the day when he will judge the living and the dead. It is finished, completely and fully done. But the question that may be on your mind is, why is, why is the author going to such lengths to make this point? Why are they going to such extraordinary lengths, going over and over all this stuff to explain that Jesus is done? Why not just say it and be done with it? Well, it's for this reason. Look what he says in, in 10, 19 to 21. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, dot, 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 it continues. But he's saying here, there is a confidence that you can have if you know that Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. 
Think of the lack of confidence that Israel had in approaching God. There was one day in the year where one person in the whole nation of Israel, after a huge ceremony of sacrifices and singing and all this stuff, could go in for one part of the day into something that kind of represented the presence of God on earth. That was as close as they could get. And now the author is saying, because Jesus is atoned for sin, you can completely draw near to God. You're adopted in as a child of God. The barrier of sin, the gap between you is dealt with and it's done. One sacrifice for all. And he says, you can have confidence. That means that you can stand in the presence of God. In the book of Hebrews, it says God is a consuming fire that is not to be trifled with. That God cannot inhabit the same space as sin. And he says, if your sin is dealt with, you can come before the living God and not be destroyed. Instead, to be welcomed in as his own child. And that confidence is precious. I mean, think of it this way. The, the, I've only ever had to get maybe two or three MRI scans in my life. But the, the thing that freaks me out when you pr- prepare for one of these is you, you have to fill out a survey and you have to write down if there's any metal in your body. And the reason for it is, so MRI, I think, is magnetic resonance imaging or something like that. Someone this morning was actually like a radiologist and had, was fully across it. But um, you kind of get the drift. But the idea is they're running you through a giant magnet. Now, apparently most of the metal in your body is not going to have a huge impact on it. But the idea that you could be run through a giant magnet and it would suck the metal out of your body through your skin and off your bones, is, that is like an X-Men type nightmare for me. That, that I like, as I think through it, I'm like, please, Lord, please don't let me have forgot that I've got some rogue screw in my leg or something like that that I've forgotten about from years ago. How that would happen, I don't know. But you know, you just you run through all the scenarios. Because... Once you are run through that magnet, like it's too late. Like you need to know you are completely sorted and clear. When you pass through death and meet the living God, you must be absolutely sure there is not a skerrick of sin left. That it is fully and completely dealt with. Because God and sin cannot mix. And he was saying, no, there is no way through except the blood of Jesus. And the reason the author is making so much of this is saying you can have confidence. It is as though you'll walk through fire and not be singed. You'll meet the living God and be met with love. And he will clear away every tear from every eye rather than meeting judgment. That is an incredible truth. And so because of that truth, we now get to the bit that we're going to focus on, the implications that are drawn from this. If Jesus is the once for all sacrifice and you trust in him, then you can have confidence And then this happens in 22. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author draws three implications here. The first is, because you have this confidence, because Jesus died for sin, you can draw near to God. Number two, you can have hope. And number three, you need to gather with God's people. If you were doing an exercise saying, pick the odd one out, surely you're choosing number three. Why why is it that the implication that Jesus is a once-for-all sacrifice, I mean, I get it, that you can draw near to God with confidence, that's massive. That you would have hope, Death is now a way to a new life rather than the end of all things. But why then gather together with God's people regularly? 
Well, they are connected. Have a look at what he says. Alright, so don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. So just as meeting together can be a habit, so can not meeting together, apparently. Why? It says to encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Seeing as the day when Jesus returns, which is your hope now, if you believe in Jesus, the once-for-all sacrifice, says then you need this church community to remind you of that day by day and week by week. So the grace that God gives us through church community is the encouragement to keep going until that day when he returns, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to honor Christ with our lives. There really are two types of grace on display in this passage. There is once for all saving grace, and then there is ongoing sanctifying grace. Let me explain the difference like this. If you're in a ship at sea, yep, I got it wrong this morning, I was saying sip at she. I couldn't, I couldn't quite get my head around it. And what, you know, once you get stuck in one of those tongue twisters, it's hard to pull out. But anyway, ship at sea, and, um, and it sinks, and everyone's in the water, and it's, uh, it's one of those happy ending ones where all the rescue vessels get there in time, and they pull you on, to, on board. Often it's the case, I've never been in this scenario, obviously, but I've seen footage and whatever. Uh, you know, once you're in there, you'll be given like, Warm drinks, food, that kind of thing, you know, sustenance, right? Not because, not because you actually need it, but just because it's, it's helpful in terms of morale and all that sort of gear. The real rescue is once you're in the boat, that's it. You're set, you're safe, you're heading back to shore. But in order to sustain you along the way, you'll be given things that will help you to keep going. Saving grace is like getting in the boat. That is the once for all salvation. Once you come to have faith in Christ... That will never be undone. Your eternity is completely shifted from eternal judgment to eternal salvation, and that never is reversed. But along the way, God will give you means of more grace, of sanctifying grace, to help you be more like Jesus. And that's the kind of grace that the church is saying here. That even though you are saved by the once-for-all sacrifice, God has given you the blessing of a church community to encourage you, to spur you on to love and good deeds all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if that's the case, if my illustration holds true, and it is the case that saving grace is like getting in the rescue boat and then being in there is like getting the cup of hot cocoa or whatever it is. I don't know what you get in a rescue boat, but you know, whatever it is, right? If that was the case, why would anyone not take it? I mean, if that's really what it was, if sanctifying grace is that good, why would anyone not take it? Why would you have to write Hebrews 10 to remind the church to continue to gather together regularly if it was that good. Well, the truth is, every church in every culture has some kind of pressure to not gather as the people of God. For this church, we see just a few verses later what the pressure was. Have a look at Hebrews 10.34. It writes, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This church that are being written to suffered. They had their stuff plundered. The people in prison are there presumably because they follow Jesus and they were imprisoned for it. And so the temptation for them to not gather together is, if I go and gather with the people of God, I'm putting my hand up to say, come get me, in that culture and in that time. And yet the author is writing to them saying, don't, don't give up meaning together as is the habit of some, which you think is reasonably understandable in that kind of context. And yet he's, they're encouraging them to continue to gather together. 
But for all the banter about Christianity being persecuted in the West or whatever, it's not really the case. That's not really the pressure film. I mean, like, really, when, when the Bible talks about persecution, it's talking about physical threat, imprisonments, beatings, kidnappings, murder, ransacking. That's the kind of persecution that the church faced, the early church. The pressure for the, the church in the West is different. It is not persecution, maybe one day, but right now I think it's fair to say that it's not. The main issue is not persecution, but seduction. We live in a powerfully secular culture that reinforces secular belief through the habits and everyday rhythms of life. And we've gone through this a bit in this series and we'll continue to, but the easiest way to summarize it is that there are three, there are three big ideas that I think drive pretty much all of the behavior in this city. And I'm happy for you to press back on that. I think these three are three massive Western ideas that are not held by every culture in the world, but are, are articles of faith for a secular society like ours. And the first is individualism. Individualism is the belief that I'm primarily an individual, that my allegiance is primarily to myself before any community. And you might think, well, of course that's a natural sort of belief, but it's not. Not every culture believes this. There's a movie that came out, I think, last year called Crazy Rich Asians. Just get a quick show of hands to see how much, like, backstory I have to go through. Who has actually seen it? Okay, yeah, that's, that's a fair sample. Look, it's a great movie if you get a chance to see it. And, uh, but uh, it's the, the story is, there's a, without, blowing, I think I, this won't blow it, yeah. There's, um, there's a young guy whose his family live in Singapore, so Chinese sort of background, and they're, as the movie suggests, crazy rich. And he wants to marry an, a Chinese-American girl who is by no means not successful. She's a professor of economics, all this sort of stuff. But um, there's a clash of cultures because she's not, you know, Chinese-Chinese. And so she comes to meet his family and the mum does not like her and sits her down one afternoon and says to her, you know, kind of explaining the difference in their cultures, she said to her, you Americans are all about your own happiness. What you don't understand is that family requires sacrifice. In an Eastern society, your individual happiness is subordinate to the happiness of your family and the duties and responsibilities that come with that. It's a Western belief that I'm primarily an individual and my allegiance is primarily to myself and I join communities that help me in that alliance. But as we saw last week, this is not the belief of the gospel. The belief is that if, when you come to know Jesus, you are drawn into a family and made a part of a family with one heavenly father. You are not primarily an individual. But what of the second one of humanism? The belief that I have near infinite potential that I need to expand into in order to find my true self. That is a driving cultural belief. It's used to sell all kinds of things. The Galaxy S or whatever, I don't know what it is. I have like a little Telstra like drug dealer phone. But the, um, we can get to that bit later as well. I'll explain what I mean. But it's a dumb phone. But uh, the, the Galaxy, whatever it is, if you've seen the ad campaigns for it, what's the tagline? The tagline is, do what you can't. The idea is that technology can augment your ability. You can, you, can do th you can be in two places at once. You can maintain an infinite network of friends. You can expand your possibilities. With certain you know, productivity apps, you can increase your ability to know and do things near infinitely. And it's not true. We are incredibly limited as humans. We have choices to make. We, are not, we don't have infinite possibilities available to us. And when we do and when we try to, it's paralyzing. 
This is why we can't commit to meeting regularly. We're afraid of missing out on things. We're terrified of missing out on things. What of hedonism? The belief that I need to feel good all the time. This is a powerful belief in a culture that has a superabundance available. This is a reality that just couldn't even be entertained in various cultures around the world. But in the West, in a wealthy country with a lot available to us, you can. But the truth is, in order to have rich relationships with people and with a community, sometimes you have to do things that are not that fun. Adam Sandler is known for doing pretty heavy think pieces. And uh, and one of those, one of those that kind of did actually tip more into that side of things was a movie called Click, which was a Disney movie from probably a decade ago. And this will spoil it a bit, but again, Adam Sandler flick, 10 years, I feel like I've passed the bar for whatever, um, for spoilers. But he gets, um, and I can't remember how it happens, but he gets a device, a remote, where he can just basically use it for life. Fast forward, pause, rewind, all that kind of stuff. And basically what he ends up using it for is to fast forward all the boring bits of life. The boring family dinners, boring conversations with his wife, whatever it is, he just fast forwards things so it's done quickly. When he gets to the end of the movie, he realized he didn't fast forward the boring bits of life, he fast forwarded life itself. He missed out on the richness of it. And it is the case that we know that if you skip all the boring bits, you do miss the whole thing. That's all part of it. The part of having real relationships with people is the boring and kind of mundane. The part of being a part of a community is being there at times when you don't ultimately feel like it in order to endure with relationships so that they might be rich and full. So the truth is all these ideas work against the habit of church community. They undermine it massively and Christians are missing out because the truth is you're not an individual. You need others around you to help you to press on towards love and good deeds. To remind you the judgment day is coming, people need to hear the gospel This is God's appointed means of sanctifying grace. Without it, you just won't thrive as a Christian. And so as a result, I want to draw a few implications that I think come from this passage. If we're hearing it as truth, that needs to be heeded. And the first one is this. Don't do good things, do the best thing. Don't do good things, do the best thing. In a culture where we have a lot of things available to us, There are so many things that you can do. One of the skills of the wise Christian is going to be discerning what is really best to do. Years ago, when I was at college, we had a preaching class with the principal of that college, and it was like three lectures back to back. And uh, and one week, I had to get to it late. I was at youth group. There was a kid there who had had depression for a a fair amount of time, and we were trying to convince him for a long time to go and get some help. He'd finally agreed to do it, but on the condition that I would take him there and take him home after the appointment. So I agreed to do it, but it meant I was going to miss the first hour of this preaching class. So I did that, got there late, got there for the second two hours. At the end of the, kind of, the lectures, the principal came up to me and said, Jeremy, I noticed that you weren't here for the first hour. And I was like, I didn't want to kind of be drawn into this big sob story, but I kind of explained you know, what had gone on. And he said, you know, and I've never forgotten this, he said, Jeremy... Sometimes the enemy of good, no, what is it? The enemy of best is not bad, it's good. You catch that? Sometimes the enemy of best is not bad, it's good. What he was suggesting is that maybe I'd chosen a good thing to do, but not the best thing. But when I heard him say that, I was like, yeah, I fully agree. I think I did the best thing this morning. I've, <laughs> I've covered all the bases. I, so he's now going and getting help. I, Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, 
But the phrase has kind of stuck with me, and it is true, isn't it? That often the enemy of doing the very best thing is not a bad thing. That's the obvious thing to avoid, but actually a whole bunch of good things. Do you know it's the case that for the habit of church community, it's going to mean saying no to a lot of really good things in order to do that one thing well? That there are so many things that you could do. So many things you could do with your Sunday afternoons, so many things you could do with your weeknights when you're gathering with your groups. There are so many good things available all the time. Brunches, lunches, festivals, things that you can... There's just so much on offer. And yet, if we say a hundred yeses, we'll fail to say one really good yes to something that the author of Hebrews says matters. Gathering together to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. It's going to mean letting your yes be yes. It's going to mean putting it in your diary and making it an ironclad commitment. Not like David Brooks said, a semi-cautious commitment, like kind of a half commitment, like a maybe on a Facebook event that you just hold there so that you've actually engaged with the invite but still got your options open in case something else comes through. It's about not doing good things but doing the best thing. And so I'd encourage you to do that. Actually literally put it in your diary. And make it an ironclad commitment, something you're like, unless, unless it's absolutely critical, I will be there week in and week out. Be someone who's going to work against the 6 p.m. rush. You know what your MC leaders get every now and then is a 6 p.m. rush. That's a rush of texts just before group starts. That's like, it's like nicking a balloon a thousand times <laughs> because by the time it comes to 7 o'clock, they're like, oh, man, you know, should I cancel, shouldn't I? You know what would be a great resolution for the beginning of the year? I want to say, inside a 24-hour window, unless you are in the ambulance on the way to hospital, you know, you're going you're to give them a call rather than a text, rather, you know, just a casual text. It's not face-to-face stuff. But give a call if you can't make it. Otherwise, to be there. I mean, wouldn't that be a huge encouragement for your leaders, but not only that, for the rest of your group? Nothing torpedoes a group quicker than when the group has Christmas light syndrome, where you can't get them all on at the same time, Right? We're called not to cautiously semi-commit, but here he says, don't give up meeting together as is the habit of some, but do it all the more as you see the day drawing near. The second one is this, spur one another on to love and good deeds. The, if you think about this, one of the habits that we learn in this culture that are unhelpful is that the main way of relating to a group of people larger than 15 people is in the cons- consumer-producer relationship. That is the main way that we relate to large organizations or anything above 15 people generally. And the problem with the consumer-producer relationship is it's like this. The main dynamic is you're trying to get as much as you can whilst giving as little as possible. That's the consumer relationship. You don't have a loyalty to anything except apparently I'm told your hairdresser. Apparently that's one where you can really start to feel bad. But, uh, but other than that, most sort of uh, consumer relationships, it's fine. And the main, the main thing you're trying to do is get as much as you can whilst giving as little as possible. That's a consumer dynamic. We are called in this passage not to be consumers, but to actually consider, think, how you might build up other people around you rather than get as much as you can whilst giving as little as you can. Think about individuals in your group. How might you encourage them, spur them on? A small message, a small gift even, a kind word. Thinking deliberately, even before you'd arrive on a Sunday or in a midweek group or whenever it is that you're meeting up, thinking how it is that you might build one another up. Thinking about people's individual needs in the group and how you might meet those that you might encourage them. 
Either way, we are called to push against the consumer culture. Now, I realize you might be saying at this point, but look, you don't know my life or my schedule or any of these things. And Look, that's true. But Hebrews 10 is calling anyone who follows Jesus to ask at, at very least this question. If everyone at church did church the way you do church, would you want to go there? If everybody at church did church the way you do church, would you want to go there? Or even a follow-up to that might be, if everyone at church did church the way you do it, would there even be one? Because if so, that means the very things that you enjoy most about this community is that people are not like you. That's not a healthy dynamic as a Christian. We are called not to consume, but to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. That's the second thing. And the third is to serve. One of the depths of Christian community is that we think about ways to build one another up by serving. Now, over this year, we have a bunch of needs that have come up specifically because people have lifted off, moved over to Burwood, and created gaps for people to step into. And we celebrated a bunch of those last week, um, the MC leaders who are stepping up to serve you guys and to love you uh, in incredible ways. But over the next while, we're going to need more help. And that's a great thing about sending a community off to start a new gospel work, is it creates needs for people to step into. And already people have been doing it. This year will be the least staffed we have been since, since we started at City Light. And, uh, and in April... Leah Davies, who if you know her, she serves on music. She, um, she also serves as an MC leader, has stepped up into that role. And she's pregnant. And she thought, yeah, why not? I'm, you know, I'm not that busy, I guess. And so it's going to help out on staff, looking after ministry and also compliance and admin. But as well as that, a bunch of others have been stepping up into the gaps that have been created. At 11 a.m., Rob and Danielle Ainsley have stepped into an MC role as their leaders. Faf and Ash went over to Burwood. Graham stepped in to manage our building as Joy is headed over to Burwood. Uh, Chris at this service has stepped into music and to MC leading. Josh, my boy Josh, is on sound for the first time today, stepping into the gaps left there. But over the next little while, there's going to be more and more gaps to step into. And already so many of you have stepped into them, which is an amazing thing. But if you can help out, we'd love to hear from you. We're going to need more folks on sound and projection. And we're going to run Introducing Jesus later in the week on a, on a in the middle of the week, you all know the content. If you were here with us at the end of last year, we wanted to introduce the whole church to what we're doing. But we want to run it midweek as discussion groups over an amazing meal to give anyone who wants to know about Jesus the opportunity to engage as deeply in that in the Bible as possible. And so if you have experience with, with managing events, with catering, if you want to be there to help run discussion groups or to follow up people afterwards reading the Bible with them, we would love to hear from you. We need to build a whole team for this later on in the year. And we'll hear a little bit about it, more about it in two weeks' time. But overall, we're going to need to serve. Because we are called to build one another and encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. But lastly is this. Love your annoying church. Love your annoying church. The church is full of people who are not like you. That's what makes it a genuine community. That's what makes it a genuine family. You know, if you're in a family, that your family, people are just not like each other. We have three kids, and I can testify they all have the same parents, and they're completely different from one another. We even have them close together, so if it was like a rotating code that makes differences in personalities, it's moving fast. They are completely different from one another. And that's really what makes them family, but it also is what's going to mean that people are going to annoy you. It's going to happen. 
They say if you don't have that crazy person in your family, you are that crazy person in your family. <laughs> if people don't annoy you yet, it may be that you're that person. But it's the case that because we're made differently, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, it just might be personalities that kind of don't gel together well. Sometimes it's actual sin. It's rebellion against Jesus that causes us to not be kind to one another or loving or understanding or whatever it is. But however it goes, you will not, if you are regularly a part of church community, if you are there week in and week out, you will meet annoying people and you will be an annoying person. (laughs) Sorry, that kind of did come out a bit stronger than I meant it to. But I mean that for myself. It's a reality, right? And yet, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And and this, this truth becomes particularly clear when you consider that on the last day, those will be the brothers and sisters in Christ that you are singing for all eternity with. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was famous for being gentle with his critics and his opponents. Famous for it. So much so that people would ask him how it is that he can be so patient in in the face of such fierce and harsh and ruthless criticism. He would be an absolute treat on Twitter or Facebook. He would be what what the world needs. Imagine that, John Newton. I mean, he, he has the ace in the sleeve. He could just finish every argument by saying... Did you write the greatest song of all time? No, then maybe you should shush and sit in the corner. But he didn't. He was a gracious person. And when he was asked about it in a letter, he replied this as to why it was that he was so gracious when opposed so fiercely. He said, thinking about your opponent, your enemy, if you wanted to call them that. He said, if he is a believer, in a little while you will meet in heaven and he will then be dearer to you than your nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Just think on that. The person that you find most difficult, if they're a believer in Jesus, on that last day, they'll be closer to you than your dearest friend now, your spouse, your best friend. It says, anticipate that period in your thoughts. Think about that day that's coming. But then you might be like, well, you know, part of the issue is that they claim that they're a Christian. I don't think they really are. And it's all right. Your boy John's got you covered. Look what he says. <laughs> he says, if he is an unconverted person... He is a more proper object of your compassion than your anger. Alas, he knows not what he does, but you know who has made you the difference. When you understand the gospel, when you understand where it's all heading, there is no reason but to love and to persevere with people. Let's pray that God would strengthen us to do so. Father God, we praise you that you're an everlasting God who loves with an everlasting love. And that you have called us to live out this love ourselves in this small church community. That we are called to be brothers and sisters in Christ. To not give up meeting together as is the habit of some. But to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And all the more as we see the day when Jesus returns drawing near. To remind one another of the truths of this reality. To not be caught up in the rhythms and habits of the city. But to be a witness and a love and a light and a city on a hill. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to be this, not for our sake, but for our joy in you and your glory. And we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.